This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The COVID vaccine supply looks to be getting bigger soon. More shots and more arms. FDA says the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine provides strong protection against severe COVID. Not quite as effective as Pfizer and Moderna, but is it good enough? Are we forgetting about kids? The pandemic is hitting them hard when it comes to mental health. Reports detail more cases of kids suffering from anxiety, depression, and even suicidal thoughts. California getting ready to offer the vaccines soon to people younger than 65 who have underlying health problems. So how do health officials make sure people don't fake a disease and then cut in line? If you are working at home, do you miss your commute? Some people do and are fake commuting. (laughs) Wow. We'll look into why this might be beneficial. Just driving around in circles. Let's start with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer, microbiologist, University of Washington. So, Professor, don't all these vaccines uh, do a good job of preventing death, even if one isn't as effective when you look at the numbers as another? Yes, that's a very important point to make. Uh, When you look at the actual numbers in terms of protection from severe disease and hospitalization, it's well over 90% uh, for all of these particular vaccines. So that means if you get this vaccine uh, or any of them, your uh, potential outcome is going to be much, much better than if you hadn't gotten the vaccine. The other benefits of this one is, uh, and they're testing a second dose, but so far it's just a one shot. And then also you don't need the Arctic super below zero freezer to store it in. Those are two huge, huge uh, accomplishments for this particular vaccine in terms of distribution, uh, being able to distribute at, at, uh, in a refrigerator instead of requiring these ultra code uh, freezers for the storage. And the single shot is important. So it's important when you do, are comparing those numbers that you remember that the RNA vaccines are requiring two doses in a minimum of about five to six weeks before you le- reach that level, uh, that 90 some percent level of efficacy, whereas the J&J vaccine is a single dose and within only two weeks after receiving that single dose, you've got at least close to 70% uh, uh, protection from from uh, infection or any symptoms of disease. So that's really, really uh, promising. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that down the line, uh, J&J is still testing a two-dose version uh, of their vaccine. And they may come back and recommend, hey, if you want to get a second shot and increase uh, that efficacy, that might be available down the line as well. So you know, my recommendation is get the first vaccine you're offered. Yeah, I was going to ask because we're getting now into this kind of sticky territory where we're going to have, it looks like uh, fairly soon, at least three vaccines, probably in another few months. Uh, the AstraZeneca one will also be added to uh, uh, the supply chain here in the U.S., so maybe four. And I already have heard, you know, I've heard some people saying, oh, I'm going to wait for Johnson & Johnson because I'd rather get only one shot. I've heard other people say, no, I want the Pfizer or Moderna one because it's a higher degree of efficacy. So the answer is, is what? Just take whatever is there? At this point, right when uh, when the right now the demand for vaccine is great is exceeding the supply, it is very important to get the first shot that you uh, that you are offered uh, to help uh, get this pandemic under control. Eventually, that's going to change. We're going to start to see the supply exceed the demand, and then that point, uh, we are natural consumers. We're going to look at the what vaccines are on the plate for us and. And uh, by all means, uh, be in a position to be able to make a choice uh, based on your circumstances. Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer, microbiologist, University of Washington. 
Let's continue with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Once it is approved and shipped, it should dramatically boost the overall vaccine supply in the country. Yeah, back to this idea. Should people wait in line for Pfizer or Moderna or get the J&J? With us now, Dr. Richard Seidman, chief medical officer of the L.A. Care Health Plan. So, doctor, what should people do? Well, I agree completely with uh, Professor Fuller, who you had on a moment ago. Um, People should get the first available vaccine appointment they can get. Um, They're all highly effective, um, and we need more people to get immunized as quickly as possible to try to bring the pandemic under control. In practice, how do you think this works? Since it is easier to handle, do you see the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you know, if approved a couple days from now, um, going to the pharmacies or going to health clinics? uh, Because it's easier to not be, uh, you know, sub-zero refrigerated. If the county and the city sites can handle Pfizer and Moderna, it seems like they're doing fine. Then does J&J go to other spots? I think there will be some customization of the distribution, uh, particularly for really uh, difficult-to-serve populations like people experiencing homelessness. So our street outreach teams and home health nurses doing home visits for vaccination, the Johnson & Johnson is definitely much easier to handle, and it, will go, it should go there. Um, but as Dr. Fuller said, today demand so far exceeds supply that as much supply as we can get in all of the different uh, vaccine providers, the better. Um, and again, the overall message to the public is get the ver- first vaccine you can down the road a couple of months when vaccine supply is much more available um, and time has passed and there's fewer people out there scrambling to find the limited appointments. Uh, People may have a little bit more choice at that point, but right now the eligibility um, and demand fire seed supply, keep on those websites, be patient and persistent, get the first appointment you can for any of the approved vaccines and we'll all be a lot better off. Well, and, and I, I suspect, and tell me if I'm wrong, I, I think that lay people, uh, non-medical people, uh, interpret incorrectly these efficacy numbers and that doctors like yourself use them in a, in a different way. By that, I mean that a vaccine that's, say, uh, 95% effective, the Pfizer and the Moderna one, say, does that not mean just that about 5% of people will still come down with some sort of mild, uh, perhaps, COVID infection, but aren't, as I asked the, the professor, aren't all of these vaccines extremely protective against more serious outcomes like hospitalization and death? Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's if, if you ask me to quote one number, the overall message we need to get out to the general public is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been entirely effective at preventing those most serious outcomes of hospitalization and death. If you want to know what's most important, of course, we'd like to prevent as many infections as possible, but mild to moderate infections are just that. They're mild to moderate. You may have fever and chills and other symptoms. Um, There are certainly um, cases of the long haulers where people have had persistent symptoms, and I wouldn't want to minimize that. But at the end of the day, the most important outcomes we're trying to prevent are severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. And the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is highly effective at preventing 
those most serious outcomes. Lastly, uh, I've got to ask you, because Mike and I have been talking about this. We have a story coming up later about commuting. Do you miss commuting? I do not. See? See, Mike? <laughs> nobody misses And he's commuting. a doctor. He's, yeah, nobody yeah, misses Yeah, we can trust him. <laughs> Dr. Richard Seidman, Chief Medical Officer, L.A. Care Health Plan. Doc, thanks. COVID-19, the illness itself, might not hit kids and teenagers as hard as adults, but the whole pandemic is taking a toll on them. Mental health issues like anxiety and depression on the rise. New analysis of surveys finds rates of suicidal thinking and behavior up by 25% in kids from similar periods from 2019. Dr. Sharon Young, therapist based in Hendersonville, North Carolina. So, doctor, we always hear kids are resilient, but it's only up to a point, right? It's been a long time. It has. It has been a marathon for all of us, but particularly kids. And, you know, it's so um, essential for kids that they have a sense of normalcy and routine and structure. And that has been extremely disrupted in pretty much every aspect of all of our lives. But particularly um, children are feeling that impact. And we see it reflected in the data. We see it in the ER. We see it in and health clinics. Um, the amount of distress is is it's alarming for young people. Well, as you, you know, uh, children are sometimes pretty adept at hiding things, uh, feelings, for one, from parents. What should parents be on the lookout for to know that their own child might be experiencing this sort of, of distress? That's such a great question. And you're right. It can be um, easily missed with children. And they just simply, most of them don't have the vocabulary to be able to capture the emotional distress and to describe it and kind of reach out for help. And so instead, sometimes kids just withdraw. Um, sometimes they act out their distress and all of a sudden children who have been never had any behavior problems before are acting up, they're being disruptive, they're feeling, um, they're being irritable, they're having behavior problems. And so really any major changes in behavior, whether it's withdrawing or acting out, to be red flags that something is going on. You know, people used to look out for, okay, if they're having problems at school, then the teacher or a counselor or they'll be in trouble and then it'll get back to me and I'll know. But now everybody's on Zoom, so how do you know if they're having problems at school? That that red flag, unless the report card is totally different and uh, who knows if they're grade in the same way, that one's kind of out the window right now. That's really true. And that's um, one place where it's commonly picked up is in classrooms and the school counselors. And, you know, they have kind of a baseline with how the kids are acting from day to day and they're monitoring that and sometimes picking up on things that parents don't. And so that now is that type of information is no longer available. A lot of kids even turn off their cameras during their lessons. And that's why that's one of the reasons why I think um there's such an increase in anxiety and depression for kids is because the red flags are being missed until it's it's pretty dramatic and kids are in trouble. Is there also a, a danger of delayed uh, anxiety? By that I mean that maybe they're okay or they seem to be okay now, but in a year or two something may surface that can be directly correlated to this time? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, too, and I actually don't even think we're going to fully understand the impact of this unprecedented time for years to come. You know, this level of isolation for, for children is just not normal, and developmentally, um, both for social development and cognitive development, kids need other kids, and they need to have those interactions in order to develop properly their social skills, their confidence, their sense of self, 
And so with all of those opportunities missed right now, I think we're going to be seeing the impact for, you know, for years to come. Dr. Sharon Young, therapist based in uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina. Doctor, thank you. California next month will expand the number of people who can get a COVID vaccine shot. People between 16 and 64 who have health problems or are pregnant, how will the state make sure no one cuts in line? Can you fake a disease? Do you just ask your doctor to write you a note? Dr. Aaron Cariotti, director of the medical ethics program at UC Irvine School of Medicine. So, doctor, how do you think they're going to make sure that people don't try and jump that line? Well, it's a great question, and I wish I had a knockdown answer for you. I'm part of the Orange County Healthcare Agency Vaccine Task Force, so we've taking up this very question in our recent meetings. I think the answer to the question is it may vary a bit from one county to another, but as soon as the state announced that uh, individuals under 65 who had some of these co-occurring health conditions may qualify, immediately the California Medical Association uh, spoke out and pushed back saying, basically, look, our, our physicians are going to be overwhelmed by patient requests for a letter or some other form of documentation, medical records, uh, to show that they have one of these health conditions in order to get the vaccine. And basically, doctor's offices are going to be flooded with these requests. That's not workable. That's not practicable. So that left everyone, I think, wondering and asking the very question that you're posing as to how are individuals going to establish or document that they in fact qualify. And on the ground at the vaccine distribution sites, how are we going to come up with something that is sufficiently streamlined, uh, but also not open to too much sort of fraudulent activity? Uh, If you put too many barriers in place to screen people uh, or to try to establish that they are telling the truth, then basically you risk screening out people that uh, don't have the, the same access to good health care or the same access to, let's say, a concierge physician who can, you know, take the time to write them a letter versus a busy physician, you know, for a lower income. Yeah, and we're already patients. having problems. We're already having probably problems with equity. I mean, we've had that discussion That's right. a whole That's bunch exactly of times. That's exactly right. Yeah, so the danger is, the danger is that those, those individuals who we're already seeing have healthcare disparities and difficulty accessing uh, healthcare in general, and have they've, they've been disproportionately impacted by COVID. If we put too many obstacles in place, too much sort of bureaucratic red tape at the site of vaccine injection, then it's those individuals who are going to be disproportionately impacted and restricted from getting a vaccine that at that stage they may in fact qualify for. So the, the danger is actually exacerbating some of those healthcare disparities. You know, On the other side, the danger is, you know, you're going to have a lot of people coming forward and, and claiming or presenting some form of, of so-called proof that they have a health condition, whereas, in fact, they don't. They're just trying to jump yeah. ahead in the queue. It's one of those things, like you said, we don't have the answers yet. And we've asked the state and we've asked the people on the boards plenty of times as to what, where they think they're going with this. But when you read the, the first thing that came from the state, it actually, if you read it closely, it says providers can determine. And so that got people thinking, maybe it's not even at these big sites. Maybe you have to go to your health system or something. And then that circles back to the same issues that you were just pointing at. What if I don't have a health system? Uh, And what if my doctor is overwhelmed with all these people asking for notes? So you almost have to, if we're going to meet these numbers, give it at the county sites and the city sites, because that's where the most people can get their shots. You just have to figure out how to do it. You do. And with 
with the two shots that have been the two vaccines that have received emergency use authorization that we're using, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, uh, you know, once you once you bring them out of cold storage, there's a very limited amount of time uh, before you can use them, and uh, you know, you also need the equipment to be able to do that. So that poses a challenge for your average doctor's office to be able to actually administer vaccines. So most of the larger county sites and then the pharmacies that have been approved to distribute will probably continue being the distribution centers, but those are not going to be the places that have access to your medical records okay. and can verify that you qualify. But but if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, and, and I, I think this is the thing that's somewhat disturbing, is... This is all happening, you know, the expansion to this next tier, including people, you know, up to age 65 and, and below with medical conditions. This is all happening when, Mike, in, in a week or... March 15th. M- March 15th. But if I'm hearing correctly, as of <laughs> Seems now... Seems like we've been here before, Yeah, right? there, there's still yeah. no real game no plan. On the, on the ground, no one is yet prepared to, to know what to do. I mean, I mean... I'm well, being perfectly they, transparent. What, I know, I'm, I'm, and I appreciate that. What are, what are they waiting for? So, well, one one proposal is actually um, that that we just open it up to everyone at that point. So, my own view, and and look, these are going to be decided by uh, by committees in every county. My own view is that we should stick to purely age related criteria. First of all, because age is a stronger risk factor for bad outcomes with COVID than even the co occurring medical conditions. So, I think we should vaccinate the over sixty five population first, um, because they still are at higher risk than under 65 with, with co-occurring medical conditions, with a few exceptions, people that are severely immunocompromised because they're on chemotherapy or because they're a, a transplant patient. Uh, so there are some smaller medical populations that we could probably include in that group, uh, and that's a small enough number of people that having them provide documentation wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't sort of overwhelm them the medical system. So if, you know, if I'm in charge, that's what, that's what we're going to do. But the fact is, I think, uh, the, the, I think the counties were expecting that physicians would be able to figure, figure this out. And they were sort of hit sideways by the fact that the California Medical Association and, and others uh, said, no, 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 this is not going to work. And, um, you know, that was a function of, I think, the state not consulting the right people before they came out with this new guideline. And, yeah. and part of the problem is the state's trying to please everyone, right? There's competing interests at work here. Um, and so, you know, by, by trying to do too much with each of these categories, uh, they end up with a situation like we have now that at a practical level is probably unworkable. Yeah, and this is this is version two or three now because we had, you know, the essential workers and then people in this category said, what about us? And then this happened and then the essential worker tiers, the next ones were thrown out and now we're back to this and now no one knows, knows what to do with this. So uh, we'll just wait and see. Well, here, <laughs> you know, the scariest thing I think you said, doctor, was it's going to be decided by committee. Yes, we shall <laughs> assemble a committee. Yes, and that's, that's the scary thing is it's going to be decided by a committee. Coming up after this short break, maybe sitting in traffic in the middle of the afternoon isn't so bad. Working from home has its obvious advantages. One is that you you don't get stuck in traffic on the way to and from work. Who really likes sitting in gridlock each and every day? It turns out 
People do. Well, sort of. Some people, they're fake commuting. They're driving around. They're taking walks. They're doing a little pre-work ritual. Jan Yahimovich, professor of business administration, organizational behavior expert at Harvard Business School. So, Professor, you're a behavioral expert. Explain this one to us. So the question here is not necessarily that all commutes are amazing. Uh, in, in fact, the 2006 study asked people to <laughs> this rate This we know their... in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, they're yeah. not all great. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're far from amazing. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, one of the, uh, the study that was conducted in 2006 asked people to rate their least favorite parts of the day. And guess what? Number one is the morning commute to work, closely followed by number three, the commute back home. So most people dislike the commute. But here's a little twist to this that not many people know. There was a follow-up study that was done two years later, and it asked people the following question. What is your optimal commute time? So if we take the prior study, we might think that it's zero minutes. But in reality, the average response was 16 minutes. So it seems like people don't want no commute. They want some commute. And it's this little bit of commute right now that we're missing, right? Some of us are working from home or living at work. There's like a mix of a confluence of everything. And one of the things that the commute allowed us to do back in the pre-COVID times is it was a temporal and spatial separation between work and home, right? Like at home, you're a parent, you're a partner, you've got so many other roles. And then back in the old days, we would leave our home, shut the door, get into our car, public transportation, whatever it was, we would get somewhere, then get to the office, off, open the office door, and now we're in our work world. Yeah, now, now we're, we're supervisor colleagues. It, it, exactly. Is it possible, uh, John, that, that, I mean, you're a behavior expert. Is it possible that these people who miss commuting and then they recreate, that they're just weird? <laughs> it's possible. I can't. I can't rule that out. I think the broader question here is, how can we bring back some of these boundaries? Because learning how to transition in these times, that is, I think, what's really important. So you don't have to get in your car and drive places. There are many other ways that you can reinstate some of these rituals now that the boundaries have all come crashing down. But these rituals that allow you to create some of these boundaries to give you the space and opportunity to transition from one role to the next. I think that's what's important. It's not about the commute. It's about what do you do now to transition from one role to the next? I'm, I'm glad you said the word ritual, because that's that's the key point here, right? We, as a people, we like rituals, and sometimes we don't realize it, but we like to fall into the little things that we do. And that's why at the beginning of all this, when everyone was definitely stuck at home, they were saying, you know what, start little tasks that you do every day so you don't drive yourself crazy at home. It was all about ritualizing things, even if it's a walk around the block. And sometimes, I was telling Charles earlier, you know, I'll get up and walk to Starbucks sometimes when I don't necessarily need Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever it is, because... I want to take the walk and get the coffee because it makes me feel like I did a little something that morning. But that's a little weird, too, Mike. Well, I'm very strange. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I think the question here is how can you build that into your routine, Mike, every single morning? Like, is there something that you can do every single morning in order to switch on into work? But then almost similarly, importantly, what can you do at the end of the workday, right? There's a lot of research out there showing that during the times of COVID, our work days have actually gotten longer. So people are now in the evenings, they're on their phone, they're on the emails, there's nothing else to do, so I might as well work, right? That's what a lot of people are thinking. The challenge is, it's also leading to a new crisis, which is the burnout crisis. We're all so spent and exhausted. And so the challenge for you, Mike, I have is, what can you do at the end of the workday to switch off to like, I don't know, go to Starbucks and get yourself a hot tea, come back home and do that every single day. And then when you get home, like, Turn off your work phone. 
or turn off the yep. emails on your See, phone. Here's, and here's, here's sure my rituals now yeah. for, for this. Yeah. I come in and I check on what we're doing on the show yeah. for the meeting that I didn't go to. Right. And then at the end of the day, my ritual <laughs> is to run. I run away from here. So... Is that is that good or bad? Yeah, we we got to figure out, Jan, how to help Mike here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a question. Wait, Mike, is this now? This is therapy, right? Yeah, I you're not for charging five hundred dollars yeah. an hour. I don't want to pay the rate. Send the, send the station the bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Jan Yahimovich, professor of business administration, organizational behavior expert, Harvard Business School. Jan, thanks. See, so now you understand. They're not just driving around aimlessly. <laughs> no, I know. People but, are but, doing a nice little something I, to no, make their I, morning I, I, a nice thing. But what I'm stuck on now is I've, I've moved on from the commute <laughs> thing. But so you actually you actually go to like Starbucks, but you don't really want to go to Starbucks. I mean, I'll drink like half the coffee. You're just going to create the Im- impression of yeah, you going take a somewhere. walk. It's a nice little neighborhood. Uh-huh. Get to talk to an actual person. You know, it's a pandemic. What do you want me to do? People are getting desperate to travel. It's been about a year since we've had normal travel. We told you in the last episode about vaccinated senior citizens already making big vacation plans. But what would people be willing to give up to travel again? A new poll by Trivago answers that question. Nearly 40 percent of Americans would give up intimate bedroom relations for a year if they could travel immediately. Trivago also found that one in five respondents would dump their partner for a chance to hit the road again, and the quarter said they'd trade all of their savings for a trip. Nearly half of the Americans polled said they'd give up their jobs, too. The dumping. I'm going on a vacation. (laughs) Oh, really? Where are we going? No, I'm going. You're not. Wow. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. A lot of people are going to have to fake commutes now. Thank you.